Welcome to God Podder, a podcast produced by St. Paul's Theological Centre based at Holy Trinity, Brompton in London. Theologians Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams and the occasional guests join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology and just about anything else. In today's God Pod, we're looking at a couple of very interesting questions. We're talking about God's plan for our lives. Does God have a plan for our lives? In what way does he have a plan for our lives? And we're also looking at the question of why does God seem sometimes to sit there impotent and powerless while bad stuff happens in his world? We'll also be looking at what summer reading we've been doing on the beach and uh, sharing one or two very bad jokes. It was an interview on Welsh television um, um, between a Welsh farmer and a group of hippies, and they were camping in his field and, you know, just generally hanging about and having a good time. And and the interviewer was saying to the farmer, well, well what's wrong with this? And the hippie said, yeah, I mean, we, we just want to have fun. We're not doing any harm. We're just hanging and, you know, having a good time. And the farmer said, the trouble with these people is they think that life is fun. Life is not fun. <laughs> <laughs> not if you're a Welsh farmer. <laughs> you know, all Welsh free church people. Yeah, that's right. quite right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you my favourite joke from the summer. You tell us your favourite. It's very simple. Summer. It was a man goes into the doctor and says, um, "Doctor, I think I'm a dog." And the doctor says, "Well, just get up on the couch there, and I'll examine you." He says, I'm "Not a light in the couch." <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that one. Yeah, that's <laughs> <very> <laughs> I thought it was good anyway. So, uh, welcome everybody. Welcome to um, Mike, who was here, Hi. and Jane as well. Thank you. We're back from our summer holidays, are we not? I'm not completely back from mine yet. Have you still got some to go? I have. And right. I've not completely been away from them, so uh, right. no is the short answer. <laughs> well, I am. <laughs> Tell us about your holidays. You're running there. the place. Well, mine was very nice. I was walking in hills in Switzerland and in the west coast of Ireland and... Yeah, it's good. Why, well, did you get lost or something? <laughs> um, so, so, so it's a long way to get lost from one to the other. It is. There we were. Um, no, that was our holiday. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Mm. Yeah, and it was in Ireland. That's when I heard the couch joke. Was it told you in an Irish accent? It was. It does sound better in an Irish accent. <laughs> Quite an in- interesting one from uh, Chris, who um, asks us this question. He says, I uh, love the God Pod. Thank you, Chris. We like that kind of comment. Um, and here, here's his question. Throughout the Bible, God deals with the individual. For example, he has a plan for each of our lives. We were called in the womb. He knows every hair on our head and so on. Yet in contrast, nations as a whole seem to rise and fall in Christian terms. For example, take the UK currently at 5% or lower regular churchgoers, perhaps fewer professing Christians in a continuum of a trend, which has been going on for a number of decades now. In other words, it would appear that the trend is macro-driven and in that sense is not about the individual, but about a greater cycle. Indeed, surely, if it was just about each individual, then percentage of professing Christians would follow a random walk. In other words, no clear direction. hope that makes sense. He ends with... No, no clear direction sounds just like the God part. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's really Too familiar. But not like God, I don't think. I'm no, sure no, God right. has a very clear direction. I'm sure that's right. I guess the question is kind of saying, um, if God has a plan for each individual life, you'd kind of expect him to carry on having plans of each individual life and that wouldn't include sort of decline in the church so what's driving what happens in church is it actually just sort of social cultural factors that mean that we're struggling and people don't go to church anymore or actually is it god's plan for people's lives because the two don't seem to kind of fit together so that's the question i think so who wants to have a go mike does Michael, he's looking <laughs> eager. Mm, the, the word plan, 
I, I, I have problems with the word plan in the sense that... You've noticed. <laughs> Sorry, you can't say it. I was caught an out late for this recording <laughs> session. So I think the points to which Jane was referring so helpfully and encouragingly yeah, there. That's right. um, but people say, often have an idea of God's plan for us as if it's a fixed and unalterable thing that happens regardless of anything we do or say or choose or how we act or behave. Um, whereas in fact, I think the plan is a, is a very different kind of thing than that. I always look at the book of Jonah in this, um, kind of, to this kind of question because Jonah had that kind of view that, that God's plan for you was like you know, that bullet having your name on it kind of thing, something that happens regardless uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and that's why he wanted God to destroy the Ninevites because God had said he was going to destroy the Ninevites. Uh, 40 days time, I will destroy the Ninevites. And he doesn't. Mm. And Jonah gets really, really upset because he has this unalterable, fixed idea mm. of what God's plan is. Mm. Actually, God's plan is a much more adaptive thing than that. It takes account of how people choose, how they decide, how they behave, how they respond, how they react, uh, how they engage with God. And the fact that the Ninevites had repented in the meantime means that the plan of God adapts to take account of that fact. Um, and I think that's part of the problem that lies behind this question here, that it tends to imply a kind of fixed idea uh, that if God wants you to respond to him, you will respond to him. There's nothing much that you have to do about that. It's all God doing that. And therefore, if there's a smaller number of people doing it, uh, turning to God, that's because God has a plan for fewer number of people. Mm. But actually, I think it's a much more responsive mm. thing than that, um, that uh, God has a desire for all of us to engage with him, to relate mm. to him, uh, to be in relationship with him. Um, and then people are free to choose whether to respond to that or not. It kind of helps when you start thinking about I mean, the, the idea about uh, uh, God having a plan for us. I think um, becomes problematic when you think, "Oh, I've, ma I've made a mess of it." You know, if God hasn't got a plan for my life, every step is marked out. You know, it's all kind of there in some secret heavenly vault, which He's hidden away from me and not told me what the plan is. But I've got, got to somehow guess it. And then if I sense actually I, I took the wrong step, I made a mistake. I, you know, a marriage goes wrong or. or or um, you know, make a bad career choice or something like that. You think, oh, I've blown it. Mm -hmm. Now, what 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 do you do then with the kind of God has a plan for my life? It's all been sort of laid out and determined for me. If it seems that you kind of get the plan wrong, now you can rationalise that back and say, oh, well, it was God's plan all along for me to make this, this mistake. But if that involves sin, sin, um, or if it involves a divorce, or it involves bereavement, or, or, or you know some tragic Pain. things that happen yeah. to people, then it's very hard to think about that as being God's plan for, for us. Because mm. when God decrees that you know I go through this this awful experience or, or cause pain for for other people, so so um so I, I think this idea of some of, of God's plan being adaptive, flexible, um, that in a way one can take a, a range of different routes towards the goal that God has for us actually is much more helpful pastorally because it means that you can make mistakes and get it wrong and still get back on the right path, still be headed in the, in the, in, in the right direction rather than feeling I've got to get every step, step of the thing, thing wrong otherwise I've messed up God's plan for my life. Because, as it's, because it's adaptive, 
it begins from where you are, hmm. not from hmm. where you might want to be or God might yeah. you to be, but from where you are, because it adapts to that situation. Right, yeah. uh, which means you're never left on the shelf or bypassed, left yeah. you know, the train train of God's plan leaves yeah. the station with you behind. I think I prefer on the whole to think about God's promise rather than God's plan. God has a promise for each of us. And and the, the quotations that Chris uses in his email to us um, about God knowing us from, from our mother's womb and knowing every hair of our heads and that kind mm-hmm. of thing are about God's love for us and God's commitment and promise that he will be our God and that we can um, walk towards him for the whole of our lives without that being a detailed plan. As you say, Graham, I think the thing about a detailed plan um, is that it makes us all worry the whole time that we're not. Yeah. We don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. But, but we do know what God's great plan is, which is to be our God and to mm-hmm. make us his people and to call us into a lifelong um, relationship with him. Mm. Yeah, I, I, was, I was reading a bit about this over the summer, actually, because um, I was reading a rather long and complicated book by uh, a philosopher called Charles Taylor, which is called Sources of the Self, which is about th- the way in which um, the image of, of, of ourselves, our, individ- our identities, our sort of individual identities have been have changed and been shaped over the history of Western culture from Plato on to, to, to the present. And it's fascinating read because he, the kind of case he makes is that actually in, in um, kind of older times or the classical period or even sort of biblical times, our sense of, of, of the self was shaped more by something outside ourselves rather than something inside yourself. So if you're a Platonist, you try to conform to reason which is, or, or the Logos or something like that, if you're a Stoic. In other words, something outside yourself. You're not trying to kind of create your own individuality. You're trying to conform yourself to this external reality of, of reason. And for, for, for Christians as well, uh, he's arguing that the, 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 the purpose of our lives, our individuality, our, our sense of self is shaped more by you know, growing into the likeness of, of Christ, um, growing into the image of God or whatever it might be. Uh, whereas, you know, and he traces how, especially through the Enlightenment and, and, and elsewhere in, in, the, in the present, we have a sense of self, which is all very much about individuals. It's all about discovering who I am, discovering my own sort of particularity, my own individuality, my own sort of what makes me different from everybody else. And he, he kind of argues that that, although there's some good things about that, and clearly there is a sense that we, you know, we do have in, uh, you know, different characteristics and, and particularities. Um, if that's the only idea of the self we have, it can end up sort of dividing us from each other, and there's no kind of common ground. It ends up with these very sort of atomized societies, a very individualistic view of the world. And um, I, know, I guess it reminded me a bit of um, that bit in Romans 8 where, where, where St. Paul talks about, um, you know, God's, you know, we are called according to God's purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. So there's a sense of, of it is, you know, that... that God's plan for me is not just that I might sort of find out who I am in some individual sense, but that in my own particular way, I will be conformed to the image of Christ. We're growing towards something which, which is sort of outside ourselves that we actually will have in common. It's yeah. impressively light holiday reading, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Graham indulges. Well, you in. might be impressed, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting on the beach, <laughs> the so sound then, in the pages. Um, the other part of the question that Chris asks about how then those of us who are living in times when there don't seem to be many Christians around, mm. many people who do believe in God, um, is, is remains the question, doesn't it? it in, mm. in one sense, we've, we've been tackling how God's plan, how we relate as individuals to God's mm. plan for us. Mm. But what about 
um, God's plan for the world, which is a big part of the Bible, isn't it? It's, it's God dealing with nations, mm. whole nations, not just his own people, but his own people in relation to the, mm. to the whole of creation, because mm. God is the God of the whole of creation. Mm. What, how do we deal with the fact that there, there are phases in history where fewer people seem to mm. believe in God? And what do, might that mean in the terms we've been talking about? But it's interesting, isn't it? That, I mean, although he's, Chris is absolutely right that numbers of people going to church in the UK have, have declined um, globally, that's not the case. And of course, globally, Christian faith continues to grow at, at, at a remarkable rate. Now, not that I'd want to kind of argue from that to saying that you know make particular theological conclusions from it, but um, but that, you know, looked look, look globally, it does seem, or viewed globally, it does seem that. Um, the Christian population in a particular part of the world does tend to decline and, and, and grow in other parts of the world. It's actually very different. So I think that's mm. that's an important part of the picture to realise that we're you know we're not just talking about one particular part of the world. And of course, it raises the whole question of well, what happens if you're in a part of the world where the chances of hearing the gospel are, are mm. relatively slight. Five percent is one thing. I mean, naught percent mm. is another. But it's all on a spectrum. You're yep. more likely to hear the gospel in a place where 50% of people yep. uh, believe than in a place yep. where 5% believe or 1% sure. or half a percent. And the question there is, are you on the shelf if uh, you're one of those people who doesn't have a realistic, uh, sociologically anyway, a realistic mm. chance of, of hearing the thing? Um, at which point I think I would say, no. <laughs> we, we know that there will be people um, who are there on the last day oh. who've never heard of Jesus. The, you know, Abraham and Isaac and uh -huh. Jacob and mm. people like that uh -huh. have never had a chance <laughs> for good chronological reasons rather than sociological reasons uh -huh. uh, to hear about him. But nevertheless, what he did for them works for them. Uh -huh. um, and therefore, I think it's quite important to remember that when one's thinking of trends and percentages and... Uh, and do you think that's still true for people who don't have a chronological excuse for not hearing about Jesus? Well, I can't see why it wouldn't. <laughs> I don't see why... Uh, you know, chronolo chronology is one thing, and ge but geography, oh, yep. that's a different matter. Yep. Or sociology, yep. or psychology. You know, somebody who's psychologically not mm. uh, able to believe something. Who, who had Jesus presented to them in such a way as to make him but utterly unattractive. Yes. Yes. Well, who are able to believe but not able to articulate that belief in any yes. way yes. that we would recognise. Well, but sometimes, I mean, I remember when I went through a period of d depression and I was almost unable to believe. Yeah. And suddenly made me sure. realise that there may be people yeah. <laughs> who through no fault of their own but yeah. through what has been done to them or, or their chemical makeup or whatever mm. um, find it really hard mm. to believe something. Yeah. Or whose experience of family or parenthood or whatever has made it really difficult sure. for them to trust mm. anybody yeah. um yeah which i guess go, i mean does make you more a bit humbler in the in our approach to the idea of the judgment of god and god's verdict upon a person's life isn't it and, and much more tentative about making those judgments ourselves not that we're not to make any right. judgments and, and, and have our impressions and, and act upon those but those are always penultimate rather than ultimate and that God's only God knows the secrets of someone's heart. Yes. And therefore, in our evangelism, we preach the gospel. We try to share the gospel with people, but we don't jump to too many quick conclusions about whether or or not or how they respond. Leave that to God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anything more to say about this question? 
I think I, I mean I, I just think right, rounding it off. I think I'd I'd want to say well you know what is God's plan for us? And, and I think I'd go back to that Romans eight verse. You know God's plan for us is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Um, that is His purpose. And if you like, there are a whole range of different routes by which He might do that. Um, so rather than thinking it as being a, a sort of set step of the way, all been organised for us, and if we miss out, tough. God leaves you and goes on to someone else. There are a whole range of ways in which that can happen to us and how that, that final goal for us, that we are included within God's plan for the future of the world, conformed to the image of Christ, can be brought about. And I think the other thing I want to say is, is that there are so many instances in the Bible of, of people not being able to see till much later what was going on. That wonderful story of Joseph um, when his brothers come to see him in Egypt hmm. and, um, and he says to them, you may have thought you were doing me a bad turn by leaving me in a pit to be killed. Mm. Yeah. But actually, because you did that to me, all mm. both you and all these people in Egypt have been saved from starvation. Mm. Um, so I, I think what I'm trying to say is don't panic at any particular moment. Mm. Believe that God is God. That's right. Yeah. And, and also I think <coughs> that it's not just God's plan for each of us that it's adaptive and responsive, but his plan for nations as well. Um, if you look at Jeremiah 18, it's precisely the point that's being made that, that uh, nations, if God plans something good for a nation and it goes wrong, he will reconsider that plan yeah, yeah. and vice versa. Um, it, it's not a fixed thing. God is not, the laws of God are not like the laws of the Medes and Persians. Yeah. Thank goodness. You've been reading heavy things. I've been reading novels all summer, as well as, of course, as massive terms of theology. But obviously, um, I would very much like to recommend a novel called "Behind the Scenes of the Museum" by Kate Atkinson, which is Mm. it's about the healing of memories. I think, really, and I won't tell you the plot because it will ruin it for you. Um, But it is about how um, the past doesn't have to imprison you; Mm. it can. Um, and in, I mean, it, increasingly, it, it it does if you're not prepared to face it and share it. Mm. Um, but it's a very, very moving and powerful novel. So what was the title again? Behind the scenes of the museum. Oh, and another one by her called Emotionally Weird. Isn't that a wonderful title? <laughs> Both of those <laughs> strongly recommend. That's not a biography. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> yeah, very good. Good. So there you are. A couple of um, recommendations of books. Did you read any books this I year? I read one book. Over the summer, okay. one short novel called Television um, by a French one called Toussaint um, about uh, this academic who goes off to write uh, a book on Titian uh, in Berlin uh, and gives up television so that he won't, won't be distracted from writing this book, but in fact finds 427 other ways of being distracted and never oh, writes yeah, yeah, more yeah. than yeah. the first two words of this book. <laughs> Somehow... Does that resonate, does it, somehow? It's kind of resonance. What did you learn from this book, Mike? <laughs> uh, that, that one should not give up watching television. Okay, right. Yeah. So there you have it, straight from the Lord's <laughs> Mouth. Right, well, we're going to go on to another question, which is, um, I guess, on a more uh, personal note. And it comes from um, um, someone who explains a, a quite a, a, her, her own background and... Um, uh, it's a very interesting story. She says that she comes from a Christian family and basically hated that in church experience. Her, her father later became a vicar, and uh, partly as a, as a result of the way he treated the rest of the family. Um, there have been all kinds of problems within that family, and then, therefore 
This person's had an ongoing struggle with God and church and men in particular. She says, I do believe that God exists because when I was really at rock bottom and felt deserted by family, friends and Christians, I did sense the presence of God. However, I'm left thinking, what on earth is God like? How can he sit and watch while vulnerable people are treated so badly as happens inside and outside the church? In my eyes, I struggle to see him as anything other than caring, but extremely impotent and powerless. I know that many of these questions trouble theologians and sincere seekers, and maybe there are no answers, but I want to move forward rather than spend my whole life terrified of the God of my experience and understanding. So, um, yeah, very perceptive and very well expressed. So, um, do we have any wisdom to offer? I think she's a long way on already by knowing what's happening to her, that she has connected to the way she's been treated with her image of God. And I think that's already on the road um, mm. to s- seriously dealing with it. And I think a lot of people don't realise that. A lot of people don't realise they've been put off God by the way they've been treated, although that often is the case. Mm. But also that um, that her, she may not realise that her image of what power is has been shaped by a particular way in which power has been exercised by somebody close to her. Mm. And she's obviously seeing God's power as that kind of power, a power that um, that has mm. that is force in some sense, mm. and she wants God to, to use His force <laughs> to right mm. the, the bad force that's being used against her, and that's that's the problem, isn't it? That that God's power is not that kind of power, mm. as far as we can see. He mm. doesn't operate like that. Which which this emailer probably ought to be glad to hear, because the, that kind of power has been used against her. Mm. But it is very tempting to want God to use a similar kind of power on our side, mm. isn't it? Mm. So one of the theological things to be unpacked here is is to learn what kind of power God does use and does have and how different it is. So how would you describe the power that God has and how he uses that that's different from the power that's, that's forceful and, and um, oppressive in this kind of way? Um, my description of it would be resurrection power which seems to be one of them. I mean, how can you think of anything more powerful mm. than, than that? The power to bring new life out of any situation, the power to bring new life out of what looked like death. Um, which is was death, in Was fact. death, indeed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that we see operating in Jesus. And that's, that's God's power that we see throughout the Bible, the power to, to turn a situation around in ways that are inconceivable to our human imagination. But I guess someone, someone in this situation might think well if god has that kind of resurrection power how could this stuff still have happened um could he not have applied that resurrection power in some way to bring to 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 not let this kind of tragedy in a family take place i think where the power differs from the sort of power that she and many others all of us in different ways and to different extents experiences as, as bad and abusive power is that uh, bad use of power does, overrides people's freedom takes no account of other people's uh, right to contribute right to, to choose uh, freedom to be and become the sort of people that, that mm. they wish um, God's power is more respectful mm of the freedom and the dignity that he's given us um, to make of ourselves in relationship with him 
what we will. Um, and therefore, to, for God to, to, to stop us from making those choices or from exercising uh, our freedom mm. would actually be to turn the whole thing into uh, a nursery rather than mm. a real world. Mm. Um, Which we long for it to be sometimes, don't we? We long absolutely. for God to make it mm. safe for us mm. yes. without realising mm. what the implications of that would actually be for, mm. for us as beings. Yeah, so it's very yeah. It's a very interesting phrase, that re- resurrection power, and I suppose it's um it brings back to me is this the idea? It's the idea of you know who, who has the last word, and um, I mean the, the resurrection doesn't kind of come in to stop before the cross. For exactly, instance. that's right. You, that's almost precisely what was expected. You know, the angels would come and take him off the cross and, and prevent this awful thing happening, but it doesn't. It happens. The worst happens. And yet resurrection comes in as the last word. And so the death is not the last word. Suffering is not the last word. Cancer is not the last word. Even suicide is not the last word. You know, that, that that's one of the crucial things that resurrection power talks about. That, that um, I'm coming across a, a phrase in a book I read some while ago that something like, um, you know, being a Christian doesn't guarantee that the worst will not happen to you. But it does tell you that the worst is nothing to be afraid of. And um, I think that's saying the same kind of thing, that actually God, life, goodness has the last word, yes. um, whatever. If he can bring good out of deicide, yep. killing God, mm. yeah. then he can bring good out of mm. absolutely anything. That doesn't make it okay, far no. from it. Mm. Um, but it does mean that there is still hope within it. Mm. And mm. it means that this, this questioner has choices still and discoveries still and... And the fact that she's asking us the question at all suggests to me that she does want mm-hmm. to know more about God. Mm. So come and find out and and know that God um, is dealing with your your family, your father, the, the way you've been treated. But that doesn't have to affect your future with God. Mm. And that's where there's the dangerous but and revolutionary, but in the end deeply healing possibility or invitation to call God Father. Mm. Um, it, w- it will be very difficult to do for someone whose experience of fatherhood is, is very neg- negative. Mm. But on the other hand, it's precisely what can heal that experience mm. of fatherhood. Here at last is fatherhood as it was meant to be, fatherhood as it, uh, in its nurturing and loving and affirming mm. reality. Mm. Um, and an experience of that can then defuse the abusive form of fatherhood mm. of, of some of its power to mm. restrict us and constrain us and, and destroy us mm. though I think it's also I always find it very helpful to remember that Jesus says God calls us friends Yes. and that model of friendship with God I think is one that we don't use often enough mm. in the Christian community yes. mm. and the kind of things that you can ask of a friend that a friend can ask of you and the kind of mutuality of that is another model that might be helpful mm. Mm. so um, haven't you the writer here has a very um, interesting phrase that, that God, she finds it hard to see God as anything other than caring, but extremely impotent and powerless. Um, how do we respond to that phrase? Um, I, I very interesting very, phrase. Very warmly, actually, mm. because I think there's a sense in which, there's a, there are modes in which that is true of God um, <laughs> on the cross. Not, mm. 
not powerless in the sense that he could have called on to all these legions of angels, but didn't. Mm. There is a letting go of power mm. um, that enables us to be, that enables our freedom, that mm. enables us um, to be real, mm. to make real decisions and real choices and mm. be real people. Um, mm. And and that powerless is is one of the modes of mm. God. It's not the only one, mm. uh, thank goodness. <laughs> But it is one of them. And I suppose it's, it's it's kind of also saying that, I mean, how, how does God exercise his power? How does God get things done? And by and large, it seems that God gets things done through <coughs> through love rather than force. That's how God tends to operate. God elicits things, changes things through, changes people through through love, not not force. And, and therefore, and there's, a, there's a phrase, you know, are we kind of more interested in the love of power or the power of love? And I guess into this situation, there's there is maybe a word to be said about, you know, is there a way in which out of this tragedy, there's a that 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 somehow love might be the last word still. I mean, it's it's quite easy to say that, isn't it? When there's a, when there's there's been a lot of damage and, and heartache in it. Um, but that, if you like, is that, if that's the way that God gets things done through love, and how God's power is exercised, then. That calls on us to respond in the same kind of way, not to get caught in this cycle of hatred and cycle of, of, of you know, wanting to, to, to sort of pay back someone for what they've done to us or to our friends or our family, um, because that actually doesn't achieve anything. What does achieve something is when love is the thing that responds to to hatred or indifference. And it's very frightening to trust that power of love, isn't it? And and we look yeah. at at um, the world around us and realise that mm. nobody does. We always yep. go for defending ourselves yep. by... Um, and love often does seem impotent, doesn't it? It, does. it seems yes. like it's powerless. It yes. seems like it can't do anything. But actually, I kind of believe it's the most powerful thing in the world. Mm. It's actually much more powerful than, than force because force often makes people do things against their will and, and, and reluctant and grumbling. and It, it can't make you yeah. want exactly. to do something. Yeah. It can only make you do something. Yeah, it can't change your heart, but right. love can. And it can only make you do it for as long as the person is there making you do it. Yep. <laughs> it yes, can't actually yes. change. It can't change you so that no. you are. So that you yeah. want to yes. be different. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I think the other thing from this uh, question really is, uh, it says, how can he sit and watch while vulnerable people are treated so badly? And yet the questioner is themselves aware that he doesn't just sit and watch. Uh, no. They've themselves ex- experienced the presence of God mm. when mm. she was at rock bottom and felt deserted by everybody else. Well, actually coming along somebody, inside somebody and being with them when they're at rock bottom is not sitting back and watching. Mm. It's, it's mm. actually sitting there with them and mm. suffering it with them mm. uh, and uh, and yeah. and transmitting a degree of love sure. yeah. into that context and that situation. Yeah, and it talks about, I guess it says something about how it rends the heart of God to sit and watch this thing happen. Um, it's not that God sits there and sort of folding his hands and thinking, oh, look, that's happening down there. It's, 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 there's a much more involved kind of mm. presence of God within this. As the cross of Christ assures us. Yeah. That's right. That was um, a very good question. And, um, and, uh, and perhaps we could ask her to email us again in a few years and yeah. see how it's going. Or weeks yes. or months or whatever. Yes. It would be, um, be very good. Okay, I think we're probably near the end of our time. 
And, um, for this God pod. For this God pod. <laughs> not for good. We're not predicting the end of the world. <laughs> That's right. I'm mean, not looking very well. It's going to come yeah. again. <laughs> Just, sorry, Mike. <laughs> we will uh, see you again next time. Goodbye, Mike. Goodbye. Goodbye, Jane. Bye. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> that was God Pod a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.